Okay, so I was asked a question earlier about the consequences of sin. I'm going to try to paraphrase the question and because uh, it was kind of long, but I, I understood it. The question was, if a person commits a sin and that sin has certain consequences, the, the example used was adultery. Uh, and then they go to God and they ask for forgiveness. God receives them. God forgives them. Do, do they still have to deal with the consequences of the sin? The answer is yes. Because a consequence, being forgiven is a state. It's about identity. You are forgiven by God. That means you have been separated from your act, from your sin. You are no longer a sinner, and God does not connect you with that sin in identity. You are not the person who did that anymore. God forgives it, and he forgets it. So you can go to God and receive everything from him as if you never sinned. But, and I'm using that as an example because that was the example used in the question, man commits adultery, and the woman he commits adultery with gets pregnant. The baby don't disappear. <laughs> baby don't just poof away. You still got a baby out there. That's a consequence you still have to attend to. Are you forgiven by God? Absolutely. But there are still physical, natural consequences. The good thing about forgiveness is now you're not facing those consequences alone. Because the same God that forgave you will provide grace to turn those consequences into something that gives him more glory. You don't, it's not a punishment. Consequence is not the same as punishment. And sometimes we think it's, one, it's, it's the same thing. It's not. A consequence, if, if I say don't touch that, that stove because it's hot, don't touch that stove because it's hot. You got, those of you that got kids, you said that a million times. Don't touch that, it's hot. If they touch it and they get burned, you didn't punish them. They face the consequence. Anybody who touches the stove gets burned. You did not burn them. They got burnt. You understand the difference? Actions have consequences. It does not mean you burned them. Now, if they do something else and you walk up with a hot, put stove, hot pan and burn them, now you burnt them. And you're going to jail, hopefully. <laughs> you're abusive. <laughs> but that's punishment. Because now that's you acting to punish them for something that they did to offend you. When you go to God and receive forgiveness, he does not punish you for your actions. But your action may still have a consequence you have to endure. So that's the answer to that question. Uh, do with that as you will. And it kind of connects what I'm teaching about tonight. We're on part three of fundamental Christianity. We were talking about the fear of the Lord, part one, we talked about the fear of the Lord and how that is not being afraid of God. It is respecting, reverencing, honoring, and being consciously aware of his presence at all times. You live as if God is sitting right next to you all the time. That's the fear of the Lord. Uh, I, I'm reminded of Smith Bigglesworth, who prayed every 30 minutes. He wouldn't go more than a half hour without praying the Holy Ghost for 10, for 10 minutes or so. If you asked him, when do you do your devotions? He couldn't give you an answer because he just did them all day. Because when he got up in the morning, he got up with the Lord. 
And when he ate breakfast, he ate breakfast with the Lord. And when he was driving, well, he didn't really drive, but when he was in a car, him and the Lord. When he was on a train or a plane, when he was out, him and the Lord all the time. He nurtured the consciousness of the presence of God at all times. You know, when I teach musicians, I tell them volume is the key to getting good at something. It's better to practice 10 minutes every day than an hour once a week. Because the more you do something, the better you get at it. If you do the same thing multiple times in a day in short bursts, but you do it all day, you will develop much more quickly than if you do it real hard and then you don't do it again for two or three days. Because now you're trying to run on something you did three days ago. You know, I've been doing this uh, training camp. I just finished it last week. Boxing training camp, you know. When boxers want to cut weight, they, they train in specific ways. I had to come up with a six-week program and then stick to it. And it involved a lot of running. And prior to this training camp, I was not a big fan of running. Uh, my mile was about 13, <laughs> 13 minutes, which ain't bad, I guess. I don't know. But I was running a 13-minute mile. Well, I ran a 9.55 today. I shaved a whole bunch of time off of that mile. But I'll tell you how I did it. I ran every day for the first two weeks. It was a six-week camp. First two weeks, I ran a mile. The second two weeks, I ran two miles a day, plus whatever other training I was doing because I had to box so many rounds and I had to lift weights four days a week. I was living in the gym. You can ask my wife. Get up in the morning. Drink 16 ounces of water, eat a banana, go to the gym. And lost some weight, and I feel good. And I shaved almost four minutes off my run. You know, so now I had to do another one. So now I'm in a four-week training camp with a different, slightly different goal. Uh, but the key was my training sessions actually got shorter. Where I used to spend an hour to an hour 15 in the gym, now I'm spending about 30 to 45 at the most at the gym. But if you go every day and then get one rest day, I couldn't wait to rest day. You get one rest day a week because you got to recover. But six days of training at 30 minutes will whip you into shape a whole lot faster than four days at two hours. Now you have to vary things. You got to let each part rest. You can't just beat the same part in every day because it'll, it'll never get a chance to recover. But there's some science to that. But long story short is consistency was the key. My body could perform at a level it never performed at because I kept showing up. I kept showing up. And just before you get comfortable, you go back. I challenge those of you that might struggle with an hour of straight praying every morning, with 15 minutes of praying in the Holy Ghost four times a day. I promise you, you'll do it six or seven times before you know it. Because it's about maintaining your consciousness of the Holy Spirit at all times. There's no, you can do it anywhere and you can do it anytime. And then you take time to sit down and study your Bible. Because most of us don't have a problem reading, you know. But as soon as you start praying in the Holy Ghost, the devil come after you with every wild out there thought because he's trying to prevent you from focusing. Pray anyway. 
He, can't, he ain't going to hang around for the whole time. I promise you. You stay, he'll leave. You run on a treadmill, it's boring. I don't like boring. Right? It's boring and repetitive. And so your mind starts talking to you. Man, your legs hurting. Your legs hurting. Your legs hurting. Man, your back hurting. Why are you, you can't you feel your lungs? Your lungs burning now. All that talk. Now, I'm still running, but I'm thinking of all these reasons to stop. None of this is coming from my body. All this is coming from my mind. Your mind is telling you, you can't do this while I'm doing it. Because your mind ain't the one doing it. Legs ain't gave up yet. Lungs, heart ain't gave out yet. But your mind will quit before your body will every single time. And if you listen to it, you're going to hop off. So if you're praying in the Holy Ghost and your mind starts telling you, oh, man, don't forget you got to do this, you got to do that. You know you watched that thing last night you're starting to watch. You can't be praying. God ain't listening to you. Or, you know, you're still, you're still kind of mad at your, at your husband. Or you're still kind of mad at your wife. Y'all ain't really. Why are you over here praying? See, all that is just to get you to stop. That ain't God talking to you. Look, if you are at odds with your spouse and you're praying in the Holy Ghost, pray 15 minutes, then go make up with your spouse. Then come back. Keep on going. You, you have to be in, at peace with your family, but not at the expense of your prayer life. You can do both. It is possible. The devil does not care about you being at peace with your spouse. So if he's telling you to stop praying because you didn't do something right, you know that's the devil. Because God will never tell you you don't have the right to pray right now. He will never tell you you, you can't pray. It don't sound like God because it ain't God. So don't forget that. And then in the love of God, go re reconcile with your spouse. And when you, when you prayed up when you do it, it's a lot easier to do. Because it's going to break down whatever that thing y'all was fighting about. It's going to break all that ego down and all that back and forth. And y'all will be right back in love with each other. So the fear of the Lord is about constant awareness of who he is, what he can do, and how much he loves you. And all of those wonderful things. You have to keep it on your mind. These are decisions. None of this is feelings. These are choices we make. You make a choice. First words out of my mouth every morning, thank you, Lord. I'm thanking him for yesterday, and I'm thanking him for today. First words out of my mouth every, every morning. Then I drink 16 ounces of water, and then I say good morning to my wife. Same order every day. If I wake up at 5 in the morning like I normally do, that's my order. If I wake up at 9 like I like to do, <laughs> that's still my order. You do the same thing in the same order every day. Then last week we talked about part two, which was yada, which is the knowledge of God. And we said that that was intimate knowledge from experience, right? We talked about how that is the, the goal. Proverbs says that Yare, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning or the foundation of Yada, which is the knowledge of the Lord. It is the beginning. It is what we start with on the path to knowing God. So first I have to be conscious enough of him and in awe of enough of him to pursue him. Then I'm working towards knowing him through experience. It's like a child that watches their parent and then they start imitating them. I have to see my parent enough. That's why men who don't have fathers in the home don't know how to act because they don't have an example. They, they don't know 
what a man is supposed to do in this situation. So they go with what they feel. Or they look at another guy who's not their father, who does not know how they're built, who does not know how they're designed, who doesn't know their tendencies. They just watch him from afar and they try to copy him. Or they let some guy enter into their world and lead them down another path that's not the path for them because their father wasn't around. They don't have a view, a God-given view, of who they are. So they don't know who to imitate. But they're going to imitate somebody because you ain't never came up with nothing on your own. You're not the first person to do anything. So you're imitating somebody. You are mimicking and pattern, you, you, you've got a pattern of behavior that came from someone else. And that is the essence of yada. I reverence this example so much that I want to be like them. And in the process of being like them, I experience the world the way they do. And the Bible calls that knowledge. It calls that wisdom. I, I encounter the world. I interface with life the way that person does. We're supposed to have such high honor for God that we want to do life the way he does it in every area. That's the goal. But now we're on part three. There's a barrier between Yahweh and Yada. And the Apostle Paul, being the scholar of the New Testament, or the scholar of the Old Testament, addresses this barrier. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now I'm going to read it out of the international version because I like the way it's worded. But you follow along in whatever you got. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. So the words are a little different because Hebrew does not translate to Greek perfectly. We talked about that last time, how Hebrew words can have a lot of different meanings. Greek words can have multiple meanings, but not as much as Hebrew. And because by this point, you know, Paul was writing to the Gentiles. He was writing to the whole world. And at this point, Greek was basically English. It was the most common language. For most people that could read, they read Greek. You know, they weren't reading Hebrew to the masses. The Hebrews could read Hebrew. But if you were going to share the gospel with the world, at this point, the, the modern world at this point in time, you were going to write it in Greek. Um, and while Paul could speak both languages, he wrote in Greek. So the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, is the word used for knowledge here. And it's more the, the word that we think knowledge to be, uh, knowing something, you know, having an a educated understanding of a thing. But Paul connects because he's writing it in a, in a different language. He connects the meaning to the greater version of knowledge, which we talked about last time. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. This is a scripture we know very well. For though we live in the world, now I'm reading out of the New International Version, so it might come a little different. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in the King James, just because I also love the way the King James says it, I'm going to read it out of there. Because uh, it's good to hear it twice. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So Paul recognizes there is a barrier between Yahweh and Yada, and he calls it a stronghold. That's what a stronghold does. You build a stronghold to stop the advance of something. If I want to break into your city, and you don't want me to break into your city, you put a stronghold around your city, and it's fortified, and it keeps stuff out, and it keeps stuff in. Strongholds were castles and, and palaces that were fortified to keep invaders from getting into your good stuff. Strongholds in the spirit are the barrier between fear of God and knowledge of God. And Paul recognizes this. He says we have to pull down these strongholds that rise up against the knowledge of God. How we know God and what we know about him is prevented by these strongholds. See, the devil knows that if you ever encounter God, Yahweh is easy. Not easy, but likely. The fear of the Lord is likely if you ever encounter him. And he can't stop you from encountering him. But he can, but if he can get a stronghold built between your fear of the Lord to keep you from walking into the knowledge of the Lord, you will just remain religious. All religion is a product of Yahweh without Yada. It's we reverence God on some level. We respect him. We're in awe of him. We don't know him. So we just make up some rules to make him happy the way we think he would be happy. And depending on what religion you get involved with, even within the different denominations of Christianity, they got different sets of rules that they all think are pleasing to God. And very few of them actually consulted God about it. I know one guy that says, if you stand in the pulpit with a, with a beard, you're against the rules. You can't do that. You can't preach with a beard. And I told him, I said, well, didn't Jesus have a beard? He said, that was a different time. I said, well, if, if Jesus wanted to preach in your church, he had to shave his beard off? You're telling Jesus he had to shave off his beard. He had a beard because the Bible says he had one. You're telling me Jesus had to shave his beard off to preach in your church? So Jesus, who is the head of the church, got to shave off his beard to preach in your church. I had to say it a few times 
So you telling Jesus he's not welcome in your church with a beard. He didn't have no response for that. Because he didn't get that out of the Bible. He got it out of the 50s. Because back in the day, there was a cultural, a countercultural movement where all the young men was wearing these big scruffy beards as a, as a protest. You know, kind of how we got all these purple hairs now. Back in the day, it was, it was beards. And so the church, being very conservative, outlawed beards. Many denominations outlawed the wearing of beards by young men in the church because it was a clear indication that that person was rebellious against conservative values. And they just held on to it. And this man is trying to, trying to tell me I had to shave mine off. I ain't got much to begin with. I'm like, man, let me have it. <laughs> but he's telling me I got to shave mine off. Because he asked me, he said, when you're in the pulpit, do you keep your beard? I said, yeah. It was a weird question the way he asked it because he just walked up to me. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you can't do that at my church. And he was dead serious. He said, you can't do that at my church. And I was like, and he was proud of how clean shaven the preacher was. And I said, well, to each their own. You know, I just, I just want to be coming to your church. Now, if the Lord sent me to his congregation, I would shave my beard. If that's the only way they would hear me, I'd shave it. Because some people are just stuck like that. But the whole time I'm clean, I'm preaching against it. Because I'm going to preach the truth. Amen. This is three months of work right here. I don't, it don't happen for me like that. You gotta let, I got to start all over again. I can't do like Ben do. Ben got up this morning with that beard. He was clean yesterday. And just one night, <laughs> he ain't got a five o'clock shadow. He got a whole mountain. <laughs> He's casting a shadow. I can't do that. My dad couldn't do it either. Just genetic. We don't do it. Except for my uncle. My uncle could do it. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway. Maybe, maybe we was called to preach because we can't grow facial hair. Ah, so maybe there's something to it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing. Hey, I don't know. If you're taking notes, write this down. Let me get off my beard. A stronghold is not built by the devil. A stronghold is not built by the devil. A stronghold is built by you. You build your own strongholds. Now, Pastor Diana has been teaching this revelation about seed and the soil of the heart. And I am not going to attempt to teach any of it or reteach it. But I told y'all I ain't got to be good because she ain't here. So if I dip a toe in your notes, mama, you can yell at me later. But I'm just going to take a slight in one aspect, and I'm going to jump right back out. Because you got to know how a stronghold is built. Here's how a stronghold is built. Strongholds begin as seeds. Strongholds begin as seeds. They are nurtured in the heart through repetition. And here's the thing about a stronghold. This is a little side note. You oftentimes don't know it's being built because you're not doing it on purpose. You just grew up saying a certain thing because your mama said it, your grandmama said it, your daddy said it, your uncle said it, your brother said it. And you don't really question what it is or what it means. You're not aware of the effect it's having on you at that time. That, that's why I'm, Pastor Dana texted me, get off my notes now. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I'm the only one that can do this. <laughs> 
she the only one that can do that. <laughs> she just texted me. Because she see me in her notes. I'm sorry, Bob, I got to do it. <laughs> Look, you was right. It might not be an actual shoe, but it's a digital shoe. <laughs> She's throwing a digital shoe at me. <laughs> Strongholds begin <laughs> as seeds that are nurtured in the heart through repetition. Once they are built, they are protected by identity. Because for it to be a stronghold, you got to protect it. And the easiest way to protect it is identity. You start identifying yourself with your stronghold. Now it's hard to pull you away from it. That's the number one problem with most believers. They identify with their strongholds. They call them struggles. Actually, your struggle is the product of your stronghold. You built the stronghold long before you ever started struggling with its results. But now that you're struggling with its results, you think you're destined to struggle with that thing. But you got a stronghold that prevented you from knowing God for real in that area. That's what strongholds come to do. They come to stop your, the devil can't stop you from being in awe of God because if you ever experience him, that's, that's the natural result. But he can stop you from knowing him by building a stronghold. Remember, you remember the children of Israel? They've been slaves for 400 years. And God came and wowed them. All these plagues that were taken out the Egyptians, pillars of smoke and pillars of fire, and he split the Red Sea and killed all the Egyptian army and manna from heaven and all this stuff, these miraculous things that Moses was doing and healings and water out of the rock and all that. See, you would have been in awe just like they were. Y'all raid was easy. They was like, well, this God is amazing. Every time he do something so miraculous, they made a whole movie about it. Then they made another movie about it that was really bad. But they made one good movie about it. Maybe two, because that one, anyway. But when it came time for them to know him, when he gave him the, his law, when he gave them his law and his covenant, and he said, this is how I want you to act. You're so in awe of me. You're so wowed by the thunder and lightning on the top of the mountain and the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. Now, here's how I want you to behave. The stronghold of slavery prevented them from stepping into the promised land. Because in their mind, they had been nurturing themselves as slaves for 400 years. They didn't like being slaves. But they didn't like being free either. Because free came with some criteria, and they wanted to be Egyptian. See, they didn't want to be Hebrew. They wanted to be Egyptian. Because their standard had changed. After 400 years of being slaves to the Egyptians, they glorified the Egyptian lifestyle. So that's what they began to desire. So when they got free, their idea of a good society was an Egyptian society. So they made Egyptian gods. The Egyptians made calves of gold and bowed down to them. So that's what, that's what they wanted to do. They never went back to the drawing board and said, what is the Hebrew, what is God's standard for a great society? So when God presented his ideas, the stronghold in them was still Egypt. That's why he had to kill all of them because he couldn't take no Egyptians, even though they weren't blood Egyptians, they were hard Egyptians. He couldn't take any Egyptians into the promised land. 
Because you know what they would have done with the promised land? They'd have turned it into Egypt. And you know what happened? It's exactly what they did. And the same things that happened to the Egyptians over the decades after happened to them. Because a stronghold will go with you right into your promised land. Because you identify yourself with it. A stronghold that is protected by identity becomes indistinguishable from the person. You cannot tell it apart from the person. Let me get on this soapbox for a second. I didn't come up with this one. Actually, I learned this one from uh, Minister Jalen years ago, and he was just talking. But you know, he's, he was the first person to ever say it to me, and it stuck with me. He said, you know, there's no such thing as a homosexual person. And I had to think about it. I said, you know what, that's right. There's no such thing as a homosexual. There's no category of human called homosexual. That's a stronghold, a seed. At some point in the life of that person, that gets nurtured through repetition, through experimentation. That's why they always say the same thing. I struggled with my identity and until I settled that this is who I am. Straight people don't struggle with their identity. I never struggled. You never struggled. You know why? Because there's no stronghold for straightness. Because you're supposed to be that. But there's a fight for homosexuality because a stronghold has to get built first. And oftentimes when a stronghold is introduced that goes against your nature, your nature fights back. And they say it's society. We've had gay people forever. It ain't society. It's the spiritual battle. There's no such thing as a homosexual person. But if you have a stronghold, you create an identity around that stronghold to protect it. It's just a sin like any other sin. But some sins don't, we don't identify with. They don't have parades for killers. They don't have murder pride parades. They don't have adultery pride parades because there's no identity for that. But some sins will change your identity once that stronghold is built, and that's one of them. Ain't no, it ain't with two kinds of people. Let me challenge you with a thought. I'm going to ask Lionel and Alea. The reason why I'm going to ask y'all is because I already know the answer, because the answer is obvious. Lionel. For those of you that are on camera can't see them, they are expecting their second child. We are all expecting their second child. <laughs> Vonnell, do you have a functioning reproductive system? So yes or no answer. Just go with your gut. He said yes. Alea. <laughs> he said fully operational. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Alea, do you have a functioning reproductive system? Yes. You said yes. Both of you are wrong. Vinyl, <laughs> let me help you. You can use this one for your gay people. You have half a functioning reproductive system. Alea, you have half a functioning reproductive system. <laughs> she said, like, you're doing all the work. <laughs> You are now. 
You only got half of it. God didn't give you the whole system. Ain't a baby been made by a man or a woman without the other half. That makes sense? That's pretty simple, right? We all get half of it. So we must have been made for each other. Because if two gay men were made for each other, they should be able to do everything that a man and a woman can do. But he can't. So it can't be natural. Because it prevents them from a basic human function. If you do something that prevents you from a basic human function, like reproduction, it can't be natural. Pretty simple argument, right? Yeah, I like that one. We only get half of it. And God requires you to go to the other half to, to do, to, if you want to do everything, for my gamers in the room, if you want to get all the achievements, including reproduction, you got to go to the other half. <laughs> That's one achievement you, right? He got it, right? That's one achievement you can't get by yourself. And you can't get it with another man or another woman. Achievements are basically little trophies you get. Ask your son. He'll explain it to you later. Don't worry about it. <laughs> explain achievements to him later, all right? <laughs> basically, it's a little trophy you get for accomplishing something in the game. You got to do a very specific number of things to get an achievement. It's a trophy. You know what a trophy is. Okay. <laughs> well, if you want to clear the board as a human being, do everything a human can do, you got to go to the other half. Or you're going to spend your whole life missing that one achievement. So it can't be natural. But it can be a stronghold. And when we have a stronghold, we create identity. And let me make it a little more practical for those of us in the room. Some people say, you know, I just have a quick temper. I'm just short-tempered. I just fly off the handle real fast. Well, you made that into an identity because at some point a seed was planted. Most of the time you don't know when the seed was planted. Oftentimes it's planted when we're, when we're vulnerable as children. That's why parents are so important because most of the seeds that build strongholds in your life were planted in your childhood because you don't have a lot of defenses against strongholds at that age. And so anything can get in that somebody lets in. Parents let them in, don't realize letting them in. Good Christian saved parents who love the Lord, love their kids, let strongholds get built in their child. They let the seed get in. And then once the seed gets in, you got two choices, leave it alone and let it grow or pluck it up as soon as possible. Now, my parents went to the extreme a lot to keep those seeds out, to prevent strongholds from being built that were going to compromise who we were to be later on in life until we got to an age where we could defend ourselves. Because the seed for a stronghold is always in the air. You got to go out to the world at some point. You're going to hear stuff. You're going to see stuff. But let me give you some good news, because I don't just want to hit you with all that. The way to tear down a stronghold, you ready for this? The way to tear down a stronghold is the same process used to build one. Paul said we have to cast those imaginations down that rise up against the knowledge of God. Remember what they rise up against. They're rising up against the knowledge of God. They're rising up against you knowing God. That's what the stronghold is there for. If you got a stronghold that says, man, everybody in my family dead by 80. Grandpa, dad, uncle, dad, great uncle, dad, big mama, dad, everybody by 80 was dead. 
Now, I know some people in their 80s running marathons. So there ain't no spiritual or physical law that say you got to die by 80. But I know some people in their families, that that's the age. You look at the whole family, they hit about 80 and they're gone. They go real hard, they might make 83. But I saw a guy that was 102 years old, still running. 102 years old, still running. He won't run in fast, but he was running. He didn't start training, he was in his 50s. But he never stopped. So if you, if you just start and don't stop, he made it 102, he's still alive. He ain't died yet, and he still runs. He gets up and runs. Not fast, but he's running. Half of us in here ain't running. <laughs> so it ain't no, it ain't, but here's the thing. If you grew up in a household where everybody talks about everybody down by 80, that's a seed. The seed gets in. Okay, the seed gets in. Now what? Here's where, here's where the stronghold begins to get built. We don't do nothing with the seed. We just listen to it. We might not repeat it right away, but we don't do nothing with it. We just listen to it. And then the people that's in your age group when you're in your 20s and 30s, y'all not thinking about it. You forget all about it. When it come up every now and then at the family reunion or whatever, whatever, you go, yeah, well, you know, they're always getting by 80. And then you go back to business. You don't, but you spoke it. You spoke it, and you didn't challenge it. You just pushed it down in there and gave it a little water. And then you go to a couple of funerals for the older people that's dying in the 80s. And, well, you know, when it's your time, it's your time. And, you know, your big mama died at 80. Now, uncle, he done died at 80, you know, that's just, that's just our family. And you don't stop it. You just let it happen. That seed just getting watered. It's getting watered because it's still got access. It's still in there. You ain't touched it yet. And then you hit about 45, 50, you just decide to start getting old. You just choose to get old. Old is a choice. You make it at some point. You know when you used to get off the couch and just go do whatever you had to do? And the first time you get up a little bit slower, you go, well, that's my new speed. <laughs> you don't ever question why. I can remember, when, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't ever walk all the flight of stairs, you jump them. You hop them. I remember the first time I got ready to hop it, and I said, no, nah, I don't do that no more. <laughs> I said, why don't I? And I couldn't answer it. I guess I'm just too old now to do that. I said, no. Nah. And so I made myself hop them steps like I did when I was 17. <laughs> because you choose right. to get old. Right. Now, that don't mean you ain't aging. Everybody's aging. The babies are aging because age is a natural process. But old is a choice. Old is a decision. Now, what do you have to do at 70 to prevent old might be different than what you got to do at 30. But you prevent old at whatever age you're at. It is preventable and it is reversible. But it's going to take some choices. And a lot of times, there are harder choices than most people are willing to make. But you tear down a stronghold the same way you build one. You let a seed get in, and you nurture it. You nurture it. You water it. But this time, it's got to be a seed of the word, a seed of truth. Because what's going to happen is, once that fruit begins to grow, once that stronghold begins to get built, just like a negative stronghold will change your identity, a word stronghold will change your identity too. Some of you are struggling with old sin. I'm wrapping up. 
If you're struggling with old sin, let me tell you why. You got a stronghold that you haven't torn down. You're not struggling with old sin. You're struggling with old identity. Anything that you wouldn't do, there are some things you would never do that you know you wouldn't do. There are things that everybody in this room has a line they will never cross. It's killers in prison who have murdered people who if a child molester come into that prison, they'll kill him. We don't touch kids. They got a moral code and they done murdered 20 people. They got a line. Because you can identify yourself and say, me, I will never do that and, be, and stick to it. If you got a sin you're still struggling with, it's an identity problem. You got a stronghold in that area that is still forming that part of your identity. So while brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so never does, they never struggle with that. It's not because they got a different devil than you. It's because they don't have that stronghold. You can tear a stronghold down and you can build one up using the word. You got to put the word in a seed and protect it and nurture it and water it every day consistently with your words, with what you listen to, with what you don't listen to. That's, that's how your old stronghold got built. That's how your new one's going to get built. Eventually, your identity changes. You know, that's why you can't pray gay off of people. You can cast the devil out. You can rebuke the spirit. The spirit will leave. But the stronghold don't go that way. Strongholds don't go away with prayer. You cannot pray down a stronghold. You have to build a stronghold against it to cast down the old stronghold. Some of y'all have been praying, asking God to remove a stronghold from your life. But you have not put anything... Pastor Dale taught us a long time ago. He said, when you sanctify yourself from something, you must sanctify yourself to something else. Because if you leave a stronghold empty, the devil will just plant a new seed. And how many of us have been guilty of this? We tear that stronghold down, and we don't replace it with the right stronghold. We just kind of leave it for a while. And you go a whole year and be like, I'm chilling. But then it just hits you one day. You know why? You left your ground open, new seed got planted, and you did the same process for the old stronghold all over again. That's why. When you are free of a thing, you remain free by building a new stronghold in the place of the old one. So that your identity changes. That's why some people get saved for real and some don't. Because you can't just get saved and then expect all your feelings to change. So much of what we have to do, fundamentally, as Christians, is behavior-based. None of it's feelings. It's all behavior. You can choose to be a good Christian. But you got to choose it constantly. you got to choose it daily, consistently. That's how you get change and growth in any area. Amen? Amen. Amen. See, Mama, I only went one minute over. (laughs) Oh, that is good. I would keep on going, but, you know. Oh, I'll be back next week, but we'll never leave. <laughs> we'll, right, until I get another text message, I'll get another text. Or maybe we'll just get raptured out of here. That, that, that'll shut me up for a few minutes. 
That'll fix everything, won't it? That'll fix us anyway. It's a stronghold, I know. I do like to talk. That is a stronghold. I've been saying that my whole life, and it's true. I like that stronghold. That's a good one. I like to talk. The reason I preach so good, because I like to do it. See, not all strongholds are bad, just, just the demonic ones. <laughs> I love my wife. That's a stronghold in my life. That's why when I'm out there in the gym and they painted their clothes on, instead of putting on real clothes, it don't phase me because I love my wife. <laughs> I'm going to move on when I'm ready, woman, because I love my wife. I love y'all. That's why when it's 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm asleep and the Lord wake me up to pray for one of y'all, I get up and do it. That's a stronghold. I say that out my mouth all the time. <laughs> I'll go back to the gym one if I want to, woman. <laughs> Those are all strongholds. I build good strongholds with my words and my consistency. And you can do the same. Easy, right? Amen.